One of my favorite sayings that I often repeat myself uh, saying virtually every week is sweet mercy and a friend of mine, Sarah Dewald, made a t-shirt to that effect. So I'm wearing it this morning and it is one of a kind, so just be envious, these, these, these won't be available. Uh, and it could also be a very, it really is a fitting sermon title if I were to go back and retitle the sermon this morning. But alas, here we are. We get to dive into God's word together. Jesus once told a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector, both of which went into the temple to pray. The Pharisee stood stoically alone and he thanked God that he wasn't a sinful man like the tax collector. Now, the tax collector stood timidly alone and patting his chest in remorse, the only words he could utter in prayer were, be merciful to me, God, I'm a sinner. The book of Luke records that Jesus told this parable to a group of religious folks who were confident they had their act together and they were harsh toward those who didn't. And Jesus finished his parable in his typical confounding fashion, stating that, only one of those men left the temple that day justified in the eyes of God and it wasn't the Pharisee. The point of Jesus' parable is, I believe, the point of Jesus' introduction in the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. Namely, there's a certain character about God's people. There's a certain character to God's people and their lives a certain posture, a certain demeanor that serves to confirm their belonging to the kingdom of heaven while confounding those around them. Today, uh, we begin a 20-week series through Matthew chapters 5, 6, 7 through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and a series we've entitled The Good Godly Life. If you haven't already, I'd invite you, to, uh, invite you to turn in your Bible to Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. I shared last week that the book of Matthew was compiled by a friend and follower of Jesus, the apostle Matthew. Though he was a Jew, he had formerly worked as a tax collector for the Roman occupation, and because of this, he was as distrusted as he was disrespected by his Jewish peers. In this book, in Matthew's writing, he is particularly eager to convince his Jewish peers that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah depicted in their law and declared by their prophets. We see this in chapters 1 and 2 as Matthew intricately traces Jesus' lineage back to King David and Abraham in an effort to show that Jesus is the offspring that was promised in Genesis and Genesis 12 and 2 Samuel 7. And after chronicling Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, Matthew then records Jesus' escape to Egypt for safekeeping from Herod, hoping, again, you know, he's shown Jesus' lineage going all the way back to King David and to Abraham, and, and in showing these prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus, Matthew was hoping to diminish any doubt the Jews might have. Jesus is the Messiah from God. 
In chapters 3 and 4, Matthew is still eager to convince his Jewish peers of this, chronicling Jesus' baptism and then recording Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Now, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness not only echoed Israel's time in the wilderness, but it also depicts Jesus as the truer and better Adam who overcomes the schemes of the devil, devil rather than succumbing to them. In Matthew 4, verses 23 through 25, Matthew is writing how Jesus is traveling throughout Galilee. He's teaching, he's performing miracles, and he's proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. And that is another way of saying the kingdom of God. But remember, Matthew's Jewish audience, they didn't utter the name God. And so he says the kingdom of heaven. It describes the rule and reign of God which Jesus had come to inaugurate. And on account of Jesus' teaching and his healing in Matthew 4, large crowds of Jews from all over the region are beginning to follow him. And now we come to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is at the height of his earthly popularity. His miracles and healings have attracted a huge crowd and the huge crowd that we're going to read about in just a moment consists of two groups of people. In closest proximity to Jesus are his committed followers, his disciples. And just beyond them, a large collection of Jews who have gathered to see and to hear more about the kingdom that Jesus has been announcing and demonstrating through his healing. So imagine with me as this massive crowd settles into the hill country, uh, country just overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Imagine the questions that were probably reeling through their minds. Could this man be the long-awaited Messiah? Is he here to defeat the Roman occupation? And what about this kingdom of heaven? What does that look like? How do you get there? How do we know who's part of it? Now follow along as I read Jesus' opening words starting at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you say a word of prayer with me? 
Well, Father, just as Jesus opened his mouth to teach his disciples and the crowds, our prayer is that you would open your word to us and teach us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When it comes to preaching, <clears throat> it's always nice to have an attention-grabbing introduction, <laughs> something that piques people's interest and compels them to keep listening. And that is exactly what Jesus does right here at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in verses 2 through 12 with, these, with this series of statements known as the Beatitudes. Now, the word beatitude derives from a Latin word meaning blessed or happy, and that's why each statement begins with the words blessed are. But another way of translating these statements could be, it is a blessed and happy thing to be poor in spirit. It is a blessed and happy thing to be saddened by sin. It's a blessed and happy thing to be humble and gentle and meek and so on and clearly what Jesus is describing in the Beatitudes is not some sort of fleeting temporal happiness he's describing a deep pervasive lasting joy he's describing the good and godly life what Jesus is describing in these Beatitudes is this, and, and, and this is a really a bit of a, a summary statement for all of them, and if you're a note taker, you could write this down because it's going to apply to kind of the, the outline that I have, but a summary statement, what Jesus is describing in these Beatitudes is this, the character of kingdom citizens that confirms their kingdom belonging and confounds the hyper-religious and the irreligious around them. The character of kingdom citizens is shown here in these Beatitudes and it confirms their kingdom belonging and it confounds those around them. And so for the remainder of our time, I really only have one point, but if you wanted to use three words to kind of uh, track along uh, with you know, a three-point outline, we, we would do this. Number one, character. Number two, confirms. Number three, confounds. But like I said, it's all kind of one point. Um, so just good luck following me, all right? <laughs> number one, character. Unfortunately, we don't have the time this morning to conduct a deep dive into each of the Beatitudes. We will spend a good amount of time on the first one because the Beatitudes work a lot like dominoes from the first to the last. If a person is not truly poor in spirit, he won't be characterized by mourning, meekness, mercy, or a hunger or thirst for righteousness. At best, a person who's not truly poor in spirit, at best, they'll be artificially mourning of sin, artificially meek, kind of that false humility, right? Verse three, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And this has long been one of my favorite verses in scripture. To be poor in spirit is to be spiritually bankrupt, 
without a boast, without a shred of confidence in one's own merit. The tax collector in Jesus' parable perfectly illustrates this character quality. He stood in the temple, he was timidly alone, and the only words he could pray before God were, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. Now, every person on earth is a spiritual beggar, whether from the most impressive Pharisee to the least impressive tax collector, every person deep down is altogether incompetent, inconsistent, unimpressive, and unqualified in their own self. But the question is, do you know it? Do you feel it? Have you reckoned with it? As you think of your creator and as I think of mine, same creator, how's that for chances? As we think of our wonderful creator in his awesome, fearsome, perfect righteousness and then as we ponder the day that we will go before him and we will give an account of our lives, are we struck by our inadequacy? Are we struck by our unworthiness? Are we ready now and then to be entirely dependent upon him showing us unmerited favor and mercy? This is what it means to be poor in spirit. The author of the hymn that we just sung, Come Ye Sinners, nails this in verse two. Let not conscience make you linger. Not of fitness fondly dream. Don't dream yourself being all fit and righteous in and of your own self. Not a fitless, fitness fondly dream because all the fitness he requires is that you feel your need of him. How profound. I don't think it's too speculative to suppose that the crowd of Jews who are gathered around Jesus here in the hill country of Galilee, that they're wondering, okay, if this is the Messiah come to inaugurate the long-awaited kingdom of heaven, how do we know who's part of it? How do we ensure our place in it? And Jesus then answers the question we don't hear them asking out loud, but he answers right here in verse three, the kingdom that you've heard me declaring the kingdom that you've seen me demonstrating, the kingdom of heaven that you have been long awaiting for so long is finally here and it belongs to those who know they don't belong. This is astounding. No other faith Creed, spirituality, or religion in all the world is so paradoxically composed of those who have no merit of their own. Christianity stands alone because our kingdom of heaven is so confounding and paradoxical and counterintuitive. It belongs to those who know they don't belong, who know it deep down. The thief on the cross next to Jesus, the kingdom of heaven belonged to him. The woman with the problem of blood, the kingdom belonged to her. The tax collectors like Matthew, to them belongs the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because in heaven's economy, recognizing our disqualification is the qualification. 
I love Matthew 5, verse 3. <laughs> Do you ever feel unfit to be here? Are you ever stung by one of the lyrics of the songs or a, a, a scripture that is read or something that somebody behind the pulpit says? Does it ever make you go, ouch, ouch? Do you know, sitting here, that you're unworthy for the kingdom of heaven? And do you understand that you could never pay, pay the price of admission? Is that you? Hallelujah. Glory be to God. To you belongs the kingdom of heaven. Jesus declared in Mark chapter two, I've not come to call the righteous. Hear that, some of you. I've not come to call the righteous. Hear that, me. I've not come to call those who've got everything figured out, who come in with an airtight theology and perfect execution of it all, not come to call you. I've come to call people who know they're sick. Full stop. That's the kingdom. This is the first and foundational character trait of kingdom citizens, poverty of spirit. Now see with me the domino effect, being poor in spirit, that is knowing we are disqualifyingly qualified. <laughs> oh my goodness. It adds a layer of sorrow to our ongoing sin, doesn't it? This is why Jesus continues, verse four, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are dismayed by their inclination to keep returning to the vomit of sin, which is me, which is you. Matthew and the crowd of Jews would have understood this. Their history was scorched with unfaithfulness toward a faithful God. But how about me and how about you? Are we grieved by the lust that is ongoing even after we've been qualified to inherit the kingdom of everlasting life? Are we grieved by the greed and the envy and the slander and the anger and the spiritual lethargy that so often marks us? Are you at least grieved by it? A few weeks ago, a brother and a member here at Oaks, he's here in this room, he approached me after the service with tears in his eyes and he wanted to confess to me something. He's not as hungry for scripture and for prayer as he has been in previous seasons. That's all he wanted to say and who am I to confess to but he wanted to confess it to me. He was sad and he was even self-aware enough to admit that he wasn't sure he wanted to be hungrier for scripture and prayer and that made him even sadder. I got to listen to him, to mourn with him, to pray for him and then I got to rejoice over him and here's why. He wouldn't mourn such a thing if he weren't a kingdom of the citizen of, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. He wouldn't even mourn such a thing if he weren't in. If his heart hasn't been made new, if his mind hasn't been renewed by the Holy Spirit, he'd be looking around the room at everyone else's failings like the Pharisee from Jesus' parable. He'd be looking around the room self-righteously thanking God that he wasn't as sinful as all of you. Instead, he was sad that he wasn't hungrier for God's word. I tell you what, I would storm the gates of hell with men like that. Not the people who think they've got it all together, including my stupid self. 
I would storm the gates of hell with the person who simply knows, you know what? I don't have really a fight in this. God's just been gracious to me. That is the power of heaven right there. Verse five, blessed are the meek. That is the settled, the subdued, the humble, and the gentle. Nothing takes the wind out of our self-righteous sails like understanding that despite our own constant insistence that we act disqualified, God, by the life, death, and resurrection of his son, insists that he has qualified us for heaven. Nothing takes the sails out of, out of my self-righteousness like that. I am disqualifyingly qualified to no merit of my own, no matter how fancy my theology, how perfect my obedience. Poverty of spirit produces a mourning for sin and a meekness toward God and fellow man. And practically speaking, let's get real practical, you can often tell a meek person by how slow they are to speak and how quick they are. Yeah. How slow they are to speak and how quick they are to listen. I got myself confused. And the same goes for media posts on, on social. Sweet mercy, I can... You, we, in three seconds, we can pick out of the entire timeline the meek ones and the unmeek ones. And when a truly meek person does speak or when they do post online, their words are filled with such grace and seasoned with salt you feel ministered to because their poor spirit recognizes they have received nothing but grace and goodness and salt from God. And this whets their appetite for righteousness. Verse six, do we see the dominoes? Blessed are those who then hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who have been graced to see the wholeness and fullness and goodness and glory and the pleasures forevermore at the right hand of God to the glory of Christ. And we can't help but grow to crave it a bit. We want it. reading and reflecting on and responding to God's sharper and active word, love, and pursuing humility, justice, and mercy, hungering, thirsting for the righteousness Jesus died to afford us. Man, verse seven, blessed are the merciful. Look, people who are poor in spirit, they know that they've been pardoned from a lot. And people who know they've been pardoned from a lot can't help but pardon other people. Merciful people are patient. They're empathetic. They're kind. And they're compassionate. You never feel condemned in the company of a merciful person because that person just sings the fact that they too are a beggar. They too were blind and now they've been given sight. They too were dead in heart and now they've been born again. They too are wretches being made righteous. Level playing field. You never feel ever condemned when you're around a person of mercy. Lord, make us that. Much of what's passing for pastors on social media these days couldn't be further from that. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart. The poor in spirit will mourn sin humbly and mercifully 
while growing in hunger for Christ's likenessness, which will suffocate hypocrisy. Where a growing devotion to Christ is will be a shrinking spirit of hypocritical nature. A sincerity. Here's the, here's the, 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 the pure in heart. There is a sincerity that is free from the contamination of artificial religion or man-centered religion. Verse nine, blessed are the peacemakers. Yes, bless those people. D.A. Carson writes this, instead of delighting in division and bitterness and strife or some petty divide and conquer mentality, God's people are at war making peace wherever possible. Just confounding. And they're making peace primarily through the reconciling truth of the gospel just as Jesus came to bring peace, to be our peace, to preach peace and to secure peace through his death and resurrection. Peace between us and God, peace between one another. Why on earth do we not all have the jersey that says peacemaker right on it? Verses 10 through 12 are thematically united. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. At face value, this perhaps is the most shocking of the Beatitudes. And it's no accident that it follows peacemaking because the economy of our world, of our fallen world, just revels in the prejudice and enmity and contempt and reviling and slander and malice and all of these things. Peacemaking is really kind of unappealing and unattractive to the fallen, which means that those strange birds of you who are committed to making peace, well, you're gonna be swimming upstream and you're gonna be facing opposition. You should anticipate it. But notice with me, and, and I hope that throughout this series, The Good Godly Life, more will be we'll have ample opportunity to talk about persecution and, and, uh, and reviling and, and being uttered falsely on account of Christ. But notice this with me, what is confirmed by Jesus to those who are persecuted on account of his righteousness. Look at the second half of verse 10. It should ring familiar. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice that is the same reward that is enjoyed by the poor in spirit in the second half of verse three. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theologians refer to this as the inclusio of the Beatitudes. It's one unit. The character of God's kingdom citizens confirms their kingdom belonging. So if you will, you know, I'm not gonna spend much time on point two and I don't even have a point three in my outline. So uh, here we go, confirms, you know, the character within, a, I told you it was kind of one point, didn't I? There's, there's a confirming nature to the character of God within us. Look and relish with me at what Jesus declares to those and, and, and it's to those both now and to come as, as they surely, they slowly but surely grow in kingdom character, look at what Jesus declares belongs to those. The kingdom is theirs. 
comfort from God most high is theirs. The earth, which is being renewed by Christ, is theirs. Satisfaction is theirs. Face-to-face fellowship with God is theirs. An unshakable status as sons and daughters of God is theirs. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. It's yours, poor in spirit, who mourn, who are meek, who are growing in hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are striving to make peace, and so on and so forth. Imagine being in the hill country of Galilee. Imagine being in the crowd of Jews and hearing this. All of these things belongs to this type of charactered person, a person who takes after Christ. And imagine then follow-up questions. How? How can I become poor in spirit? What do I need to do? This morning, I was thumbing through my Twitter feed and a pastor, a Presbyterian reverend named Burke Parsons said something, wrote something that I think is highly fitting for this. How do I become poor in spirit? How do you become poor in spirit? And he says this, our symbol is not a ladder to climb up. It's simply a cross. It's simply surrendering and saying, wow, I don't even know that I am poor. I don't even know that I want to be poor in spirit. I kind of am concerned by that. Lord, help me. And he will. And he will. I feel kind of poor in spirit. I don't even really know that I, 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 I want to grow in my hunger and thirst for righteousness. I don't know that I'm super sad by my sin. Help me. And he will. He will. All the fitness he requires is that we feel our need for him. The tax collector from Jesus' parable. Jesus said he walked away from the temple that day justified in the eyes of God. Signed, sealed, delivered. You know what that's, that, that tax collector's prayer was? Be merciful to me, God. I'm a sinner. The kingdom of heaven is confirmed to those. It belongs to those who know they don't belong. Jesus says, I give it to those who have nothing to give. I declare that the worthy citizens of my kingdom are, no, are those who know in and of themselves they are unworthy. This is the most wonderful, counterintuitive invitation of any faith, any worldview, any spirituality on the planet. Come to me. Are you heavy laden? I'll give you rest. Do you know you need mercy? I'll give it to you. Do you know that apart from unmerited favor, you've got no chance? Well, guess what? You've got all the chance in the kingdom of heaven, which is yours. 
Jesus' life, death, resurrection, his perfect life, his perfectly obedient life, his perfectly theologically figured out life, his death and his resurrection, all, all of it, secured for me an absolute hack. On my best day, I barely know where I'm going. And that just goes to show that I don't know where I'm going. But have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on us. We're sinners. And it's that heart posture that can and will storm the gates of hell and prevail. How unreal. How upside down. How glorious is the good news of Jesus. I think that all of these character traits taken together, I was going to end with this idea of confounding the hyper-religious and confounding the irreligious around us. When the true church is walking in poverty of spirit, mourning sin, putting on meekness, peacemaking, hungering as best we can for for righteousness when we do these things there is such an upside downness to the fact that we are kingdom heirs right now qualified in Jesus it serves as a mission it's 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 a witness to the world around us I mean it should be something this place I I've heard this described before I don't remember who originally said it this way but the church is not a museum of polished saints who are on display like trophies. This is a hospital for people who know they're dead and broken apart from Jesus. And it should feel that way. There should be an absolutely, utterly guttural meekness and humility in this place. Look, if you're coming to a place that has figured out how to do it all, you're in the wrong place. But if you want to be in a place that is going to prevail against the gates of hell by the blood of Christ right here, and there are other churches in Worcester the same, celebrating the gospel, declaring our poverty of spirit, we haven't but a chance apart from the perfect blood and his spirit given to us to slowly but surely conform us into Christ's likeness. Amen kingdom conquerors I tell you these are kingdom citizens all right I'm going to stop babbling let's um, transition to communion and is this not what we celebrate repentantly when we come up here when we take of the Lord's supper when we take of the bread when we take of the cup and I have gotten into a habit of reminding this because I think it's appropriate look if you are of the spiritual age if you will or maturity to be capable of real self-examination and discernment, asking yourself, where in my life am I absolutely acting in arrogance of spirit? Where in my life have I been negligent to mourn my sin? Where in my life am I so unmeek it's a put-off to everyone around me? Where in my life, Jesus, Holy Spirit revealed to me, where am I not walking in the beauty and the fullness and the wholeness of what you have afforded me. And to come before, uh, up here, to be served the body and the, and the blood, the bread and the cup in a way that celebrates in repentance and enjoys a sensory meal of man as real as the bread is, as real as this juice is, so real did Jesus become 
He put on flesh, died in my place, rose to life. So real is the salvation that I have. It's as real as I'm tangibly eating right now. Praise be to God. Thanks be to God. Now God, as I take and as I remember, oh, make my spirit to be poor. Help me to know I am so disqualified and it makes me qualified. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And to celebrate and to sing as we take communion, if you are a believer old enough to self-discern, to introspect like that, then I would invite you to come forward and to take the elements. And as I pray, I'm gonna invite those who are gonna be serving and, uh, and also our brother Ed, who's gonna lead us into some singing as we sing. And when I pray, when I'm finished, you are welcome to come forward, amen? All right, let's pray. Well, Father, I'll just simply pray it this way. By your powerful Holy Spirit, according to the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and power, Lord, would you please humble us, grant to us poverty of spirit. Would you please grant to us a mourning for our sin? Would you please grant to us a meekness that is not ours? Would you please grant to us a hunger and a thirst for the things of Christ? Would you please grant to us a mercy to show others for we have been shown so much mercy? Would you grant to us a purity of heart? God, would you just absolutely vanquish a spirit of hypocrisy from us? Would you, God, grant to us the uh, desire, the boldness to be peacemakers, reconciling, in the power of the gospel. God, would you please bless us with this understanding that it's actually a pretty wonderful thing to be identified with you being persecuted for righteousness sake. When others revile us or say poor things or think we're bigots or persecute us or utter all kinds of, Lord, help us to strangely rejoice and to be glad, not only because we identify with Christ in that, but because our, our reward is great in heaven, Jesus says so. We praise you for these things and ask that you would form these things in us that our character would be of the kingdom, that it would confirm our belonging, that it would confound with great witness opportunity those around us and that more Lord Jesus by your grace would come and enter your kingdom by the way of Jesus' blood. It's in his name we pray these things, amen.